0: Listening to Divorce Happy Hour with your host Christina Previtt
1: and John Nocklinger.
0: We're two divorce lawyers from New Jersey here to talk about love, life, and divorce. Whether you're thinking about divorce, going through one now, or been there, done that, or if you're just a divorce voyeur, this show is for you. To learn more about us and our law firm, you can find us at central You can also find us on social media. Just search for NJ Divorce Solutions on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let us know if you like the show or hate the show and what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Please keep in mind that this show is for informational purposes only. It's not intended to take the place of legal advice. If you need legal advice, please call New Jersey Divorce Solutions at 732-384-1550 and mention this program for a free consultation. So the issue of cohabitation. The reason that we want to talk about that is because there's, it seems that there is a lot of discussion about it in the news right now, and in particular, what really grabbed my attention is that I saw a NewJersey.com article that had incorrect information, and I was really concerned about that being disseminated to, to the public, because as we know, um, you know, you can diagnose your own medical problems on Google, but chances are it's probably not very accurate. And you should certainly consult with the doctor before you decide that you uh, need surgery for something. And really the same applies to a legal problem. Don't just assume that because something happened a certain way in your friend's divorce, or you read something in the newspaper, as we're going to find out is not always correct, or you, know, you Googled it, that you've solved your problem. It's always better to be safe than sorry. And at least consult with someone to find out, you know, if you're approaching the problem correctly.
1: So, so let me ask you a question, Christina. How do, you, how do you address the people when they come into your office and they're like, well, I, I read something online that says I'm going to get, you know, permanent alimony or full custody. What, what, do you, what is it that you say to them? Because they clearly think that they already know everything there is to know about the topic.
0: Well, chances are if they're coming into the office, they they don't really believe that they know everything and they're being smart and checking up, right? They're coming into the office to find out more information about that topic. But I'm not offended when people go online to get information. I think they should do that. We all do that. That's only natural in this technology age. But I'm only trying to emphasize don't rely upon that. So, for instance, we're going to talk about cohabitation. I've heard... A lot of people come into my office and say different things about whether they're actually cohabitating or whether they're not, and a lot of times it's incorrect information. So oftentimes we'll have a woman that comes to our office who has been maybe cohabiting with her boyfriend, we'll say, and she's getting alimony, and maybe according to the law she's cohabiting, but she didn't think so because maybe her boyfriend was only staying at her house a few nights a week. But she forgot to mention that he bought her house. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, sometimes those issues can get a little gray, and it is important to share that with your attorney. And and always don't be afraid to ask questions. If you have an attorney and you're afraid to ask a question because you don't want to appear dumb or maybe they don't seem that approachable to you and you don't want to be embarrassed asking what you think might be a stupid question, I would say... Maybe you should consider whether you're with the right attorney because you should feel comfortable talking to that person and you should feel comfortable that you're not bothering them with any questions that may seem silly. You know, it might seem silly to us as attorneys, but you're you're not an attorney. So you should always check and um, make sure that your your understanding of the law is correct.
1: Well, you know, on on that point, I mean I think this is a very important lesson to learn before you hire an attorney to represent you in a family law action. Whenever you go in, let's say you're, you're about to go through a divorce. When you go meet with attorneys, I mean, first question, or first question should go through your head is, is this person actually listening to me? You know, are they listening to me? And when I ask them questions, do they seem annoyed? Are they rolling their eyes? Do they seem like I'm asking the dumbest question in the world? I mean, usually if the first, first meeting they're going to be doing that, it's only going to get worse from there on out. And unfortunately, we know... We unfortunately know a lot of attorneys that have done this a very long time and, um, you know, do consider uh, – do get a little moody along the way. Sure, you, that's normal. And you have to understand, you're, there's going to be times when you call your attorney in tears because something happened, and you always have to keep that in mind. Is this the kind of person that's going to be able to uh, talk to me and not make me feel bad for – whatever it is that I'm calling to discuss with them.
0: That's right. You should feel comfortable talking to that person. I always try to compare it to me as a layman trying to select a doctor. I don't know who to pick. I don't know. How do I know someone's a really good doctor? I don't know. You know, if they have a white lab coat on and they have a nice pair of shoes on, am I supposed to think they're a good doctor? I don't really know. And I'll be very honest. When I'm looking for a doctor, I will look online. And I do seem to feel a little more comfortable if I know what they look like and I see a picture of them. And I can't imagine that other people aren't doing the same thing when they're trying to pick an attorney. But since I am an attorney, I can tell you that certain things that you should look for is, is, you should make sure that your personalities are compatible. Um, You know, some people will just look through super lawyers and try to find somebody who's on the list. But I think, you know, John and I can probably tell you that there are plenty of people on the super lawyers list that we don't think should be. We're not naming names. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, we won't name any names. But, um, you know, that's probably not the best way to pick an attorney. Obviously we've already mentioned pick someone who practices family law. But at the same time, you should meet with the person and really make sure that you feel comfortable with them. You're going to be talking about a lot of intimate details about your life, and you, you want to make sure that your personalities are compatible. Um, so going moving towards the cohabitation issue. So. I'm just going to read the first line of this article that was on NewJersey.com. It was posted on January 29th, 2016, and it caught my attention because it's really been picking up a lot of traction on Facebook. And I probably wouldn't have paid much attention to it, but I read the first two sentences, and they were so inaccurate that I was compelled to read more to find out who this person was that was was essentially giving bad legal advice in an article. And I'm not going to say the author's name, although some people might be able to find and figure it out themselves. Um, So the first sentence says that before 2014, which is when the um, new statute was enacted, a divorced spouse had to show that his ex-spouse shared a common residence with a new partner in order to prove they were living together and be able to stop alimony, uh, stop paying alimony. And that actually is totally incorrect, and then the sentence, second sentence says, but under the Alimony Reform Act of 2014, which su- suggested this is something new, an ex-spouse no longer has to be living full-time in the same home as another person to be engaged in what we refer to as cohabitation. So those statements I found a little alarming because I don't want people reading that and thinking that that's the law because that is not the law. Um you know most often, what happens in our practice is that we get um, we get someone who comes into our office and i 'm going to generalize here it 's most often it 's the husband paying the wife alimony so i 'm just for ease of reference i 'm going to refer to it that way. We'll mostly get husbands that come in because, you know, the wives aren't going to come in and announce to us that they're living with somebody, and maybe sometimes they don't even actually know that whatever they're doing constitutes living with someone. But we'll get the husband who comes in and wants to know, uh, what do I have to prove to show that my ex-wife is living with somebody? I, I suspect that she's living with someone. A lot of times they don't actually know. They just suspect and they share with us you know, what evidence they think that they have that would tend to suggest at the very least that the ex-wife is living with someone. So the old law was that you didn't have to necessarily be all moved in, meaning you know, you're all your belongings there, your car's there every night, you know, you're living there. You've got more than just your toothbrush there. Um, That isn't the law. That wasn't the law before, and that's not the law now. So um, the takeaway really is that cohabitation is not all that clearly defined the way that it was defined before. Again, you didn't have to be there every single night. If you were there a few nights a week, then that was probably enough to get you in the door with most judges um, to to have further proceedings to determine whether there's actually a cohabitation happening and whether the alimony should be modified or terminated. So I'm not going to go into specifics about case law and statutes and things like that because that's not really what our intention is with this program. We really just want to sort of give you in layman's terms what the law is. So...
1: Well, I mean, I really think this article, <clears throat> I mean, not not dealing with the cohabitation issue in of itself, I think this article really is symbolic of what I see a lot, not just in newspapers but also um, on news programs and elsewhere, where I'll see uh, non-attorneys discussing legal issues in an overly simplistic way that provides inaccurate information. And, <clears throat> you know, the only place that I actually read um, articles that I feel like are really um, – correct for the most part when they're discussing legal issues is in the New Jersey Law Journal, which non-attorneys aren't reading in the first place. Yeah. So I would just be really careful any time that you see an article in a newspaper or you, or you see a, a news clip and they're discussing legal issues that a lot of times um, you're only getting half the story or you're only getting a very overly simplistic um, explanation of what's going on. And this article, um, as Christina already pointed out, is a prime example of giving people some information that's not fully complete, but it kind of has the appearance of being complete information, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's sure. Really, it really looks like it's telling you what the law is, and that really could be dangerous.
0: Sure, and, and he does have some quotes throughout the article with um, recognized attorneys in, in New Jersey that practice family law that are good attorneys and some of those quotes are, I would say, are accurate, but, um, you know, the, certainly the first two sentences that I just read were not accurate. So um, what I just want to emphasize from this article is that there there was a new statute that was enacted, and I think a lot of people are already aware of that, maybe not all the particulars, but they're aware that there was a new alimony uh, reform act that was established, and it made certain changes to the alimony rules. But... I think what we want you to understand uh, after this program regarding cohabitation is that previously the law was that you didn't necessarily have to be all living together and that really has not changed. So I I think most attorneys that are practicing family law would agree with me that the law concerning what constitutes a cohabitation has really not changed. It might have been further defined a little bit, but it's really has not changed. Um, I think what is a little more questionable is what is the result of that? Not that there was much guidance before. All we knew is that your alimony could be modified or terminated, but it was very gray as to what, You know, what magical line in the sand was there where suddenly you are considered to be cohabiting? And if you are, what happens to your alimony? So I don't think that that... I think that gray is still there. It's it's still very much present. And as a result of that, there's still going to be a lot of litigation over this issue. But I just wanted to bring to people's attention that, you know, it's not correct that it's suddenly easier under this new alimony statute to prove cohabitation. It's really not. And unfortunately, because there's not a lot of guidance in the case law or in the statute, we're still going to have litigation over what is cohabitation. And we're even going to have more litigation over what happens when someone is cohabiting. Does the alimony automatically terminate under those circumstances? Is there any room to modify it or does the alimony just simply become terminated? So if you have an issue like that, um, we're certainly here to consult you regarding any specific questions that you have in your situation. But don't assume that just because maybe your next door neighbor was able to, you know, have her boyfriend staying over the house a few nights a week and had litigation and didn't have her alimony terminated that you're going to be okay too. So why don't we talk a little bit more about wh- what do we tell our clients is cohabitation? Because we do give them some guidance on that issue.
1: Well, I mean, I think, I think the first thing that everyone needs to realize is that, you know, living, living with your mother or father or your child or even a friend usually is not cohabitation. Yes. When we talk about cohabitation, we mean a marital type relationship. A boyfriend, a girlfriend, someone you're in a romantic relationship with that's very intimate and personal. And basically, the whole reason that we have this this cohabitation where um, you can have alimony suspended or terminated or modified um, if uh, you are cohabitating is because of the fact that most people will get, will get around alimony not terminated upon remarriage by just not marrying. But yeah. they but they're living with somebody like they're married. Everyone thinks they're married. It's the kind of situation where you see two people living in a house together and if you don't know them you would assume they're married because of the way they're living their lives. Um, sometimes it means that you have got joint bank accounts, you've got, you know, property titled in both names, you know, you've got a bunch of things that are, are uh, you know, joint, but that's not always the case either. It could very well be that you've got nothing joint. But the way you're living your life, it's really, um, it's really this intimate relationship, and beyond that, it really is the economics tied to that kind of relationship. So, for example, you know, we have a. We, the new statute that came out, and we'll talk about this new uh, this new law every once in a while, because I got to tell you, it's the, one of the number one questions I get from people: is the What's the new alimony law? What does it mean to me, mean for me? Does it mean I don't have to pay alimony anymore? What What do I have to do?
0: Yeah, there's a um, lot of men that are really excited about this new law because they're like, "Wow! I, all I have to do is show this guy is living over there, and my alimony is going to stop." Exactly. It's really exactly. just not that easy.
1: So you know, it, it, it's, it's the kind of thing where. Um, it's the kind of thing where you, uh, you, you really have to, uh, understand that once you are, um, you either agree or you're ordered to pay alimony, it really only absolutely terminates upon remarriage, except in this situation. Or death,
0: don't forget or, about that. Well,
1: of course, death, <laughs> of course, death, which I'm sure there's more than one, um, and I'm not to stereotype too much, but I'm sure there's one, more than one guy hoping and praying for that to happen, um, but that being the case, um. Cohabitation is really one of those things where uh, people just don't understand um, what, it, what goes into having to prove your case. And quite frankly, um, that's one thing that we're going to get into a little bit after the break um, is what do you have to do to prove your case? And we're going we're to talk about some cases we've been involved with and kind of the facts that have come out during those cases just to kind of illustrate like it's not, it's not easy and quite frankly it's expensive.
0: Yes, it's very expensive. And
1: and you know the one thing I most people don't want to do is to pay a bunch of alimony, then pay a bunch of more money to attorneys and private investigators and all these other people only to find out you're not going anywhere with your claim.
0: Yeah, you really have to continually do a cost benefit analysis to figure out how much am I spending and what's my potential result and how much can I save because You'll hear it a million times. It doesn't make sense to spend $25,000 to save $10,000. No, well,
1: I, I know I say that to people all the time, and half the time people look at me like with a blank face. Because, unfortunately, in our area of what we do, um, most people are guided more with, by their emotions yes. than, than their actual uh, business acuity. Let me put it that way. I tell people every day, this is a business decision. Do you want to pay me five thousand dollars to go get you that crockpot that you want so much, Absolutely. or do you want to, you know, keep, just give your spouse five thousand dollars or give your ex-spouse five thousand dollars and make it go away? Because
0: sometimes they do want to pay five thousand dollars for the crockpot, though.
1: Unfortunately, that happens far, far, far too often. Um, I just want to get to a couple questions that have uh, come in. The first one uh, we got by email, and uh, someone was wondering since we're talking about cohabitation. What if you're not married and you're living with somebody? Does the person you're living with have any rights?
0: Nope, not anymore. It's going to be a lot harder to enforce that. It has to be in writing. Quite simply, it has to be in writing.
1: Well, that's that makes it nice and easy, doesn't it?
0: Sounds like it, right? I'm sure someone will find a, a loophole <laughs> to litigate that issue again.
1: Now, now when, you, when we say writing, do you think it's just enough, like, two people write on a napkin You know, something about, you know, I'm going to support you and both people sign it. Do you think that's sufficient? Well,
0: it's it's contract law, so we don't want to get real technical again. In fact, we even have a safe word that if one of us starts to sound too much like a lawyer and, you know, a talking head... There's got to be a safe word to sort of alert them that they're doing it. But um, I don't want to bore, every, bore everyone with contract principles, but it has to satisfy all of the, the um, elements of a contract. So it has to define all of the terms. And um, that, that's really all I'm willing to say about that subject right now.
1: <laughs> all right. So we got a question from Twitter that I think would be is a good um, place for us to start. And uh, someone wanted to know, Do you have to hire a private investigator to prove cohabitation?
0: Well, you don't necessarily have to, but it is helpful because depending on what evidence you have that the wife is living with the boyfriend, it might be your best way to to gather evidence because you can't just go to court and say... I think my I think my wife is living with someone. That's not going to do it. You've got to have some objective proof that the wife is living with someone. So, and also, you know, what we hear often is, "Well, my kids told me." I don't really think that's enough either. And I always try to discourage people, depending on how old the kids are and how comfortable they may be talking about it. Um, it's probably a last resort to have to involve the kids basically testifying against their mother but yes to answer your question I would always suggest that unless there's something else really concrete like maybe they've posted on Facebook they've proclaimed their love for each other and the fact that they just bought a house together I've actually had that happen before Um, but if you don't have anything like that that's that's concrete and objective then probably your best bet is to have a private investigator surveil the house
1: you know before before we go further on the private investigator i think i think your facebook comment was pretty interesting because i can't tell you how much excellent evidence i find from people's facebook pages
0: it's pretty amazing what people post on there i
1: just don't even understand i mean first of all as as someone who's not your friend why why you allow anyone to see all of your information anyway is beyond me because quite frankly, if, if I'm researching you I'm looking at your pictures and I'm seeing what you were doing you know, a year and a half ago because I'm, I'm trying to build a case for my client and it's so easy for me just to run on there, that's really ridiculous. You really need to pay a little bit more attention to the fact that there are privacy settings on Facebook. But more than that is that even when people do that, they're still friends with many people that their spouse is friends with and don't believe for a second that they're not providing that information to your spouse. i got to tell you, it is, in my opinion, the number one source of information for cohabitation cases. In fact, I have a case right now, which I'm going to talk about here in a little while, um, where I was at mediation. And um, one, of the, one of the things that occurred was that on Facebook, I was able to see she was selling furniture, moving And we so we knew exactly when she moved out of her residence into the boyfriend's residence. We we got information from from Facebook page about when she went shopping for wedding dresses and when she was you know starting to plan her wedding eight months before she got married. So we knew, and because obviously it's easy to prove someone's in a marital type relationship if they're living together shopping for a wedding dress and they're about to get married. So it's just it's something I just wanted to throw in there. But also when you get back to the private investigator. You know, uh, Christina and I, about a year ago, about a year ago, mm-hmm. um, we actually did a trial, um, a cohabitation trial. And uh, in that trial, there were private investigators that were called. And what was interesting, um, just real quick, the way, the way this kind of works is that you got to run into court and tell a judge, like, look, hey, my ex-spouse is cohabitating. If the judge thinks you have at least a kind of a case, the judge will schedule it for a trial. And then you have a trial. Um, But you have to open the door. You have to convince the judge there's at least enough. So that's really what we're talking about, the private investigators, to at least get the – wet the judge's appetite a little bit to think, okay, there's something here. We need to look further. But private investigators, I got to tell you, there's no rhyme or reason to what judges will look for. Because in this case that Christina and I had, all the private investigators had were pictures of a car in a driveway on random dates.
0: Yeah, it was a very, very short window. I mean, the guy could have been on vacation that week and just stayed over the house a few days. It, it, it was not much at all. In my opinion, I don't think that it should have gone forward, but it did. And, you know, that's probably a topic that we could spend another hour on another day is very unpredictable results when you go to court, but we won't get into that right now.
1: No, but it's it's, it's important to know that when you're when you're starting one of these cases – there's no way anyone could tell you what's enough. That's right, and you know what? don't know.
0: Be careful if you go to an attorney and they seem to have a crystal ball under their desk because I'd really like to see that. I'm always amazed when I, when I meet with a new client and maybe they've met with someone else who has assured them that they're going to get a certain result in court because there's just no way that you can guarantee a result in court. And actually, one of our... Uh, our motto around the office is that we don't tell you what you want to hear. We tell you what you need to know. So if we're telling you something, it's certainly not to upset you, um, but we feel that we have an obligation to tell you the truth about your case and not just tell you something that you want to hear because it's going to make you feel good or because it's going to make you pay us a retainer and hire us.
1: Well, and that's, that's really the problem is that most attorneys will tell you tell clients exactly what they want to hear just to get them in the door. And then here we are six months later, you're trying to settle the case and you've got someone saying, but you told yeah. me I was going to get X and I'm only going to get
0: Y. Yes. And they and you've already spent thousands of dollars assuming that you're going to get the result that they've promised you, but we don't want to bad mouth lawyers. There's plenty of good lawyers out there that don't do that. Um, but just be mindful of these kinds of things when you are, researching lawyers and meeting with lawyers so going back to the to the private investigator issue so when you get a client that comes in and you're talking about the private investigator they always ask you well what do i need what do i tell the private investigator to do how much do we need what do you tell them
1: well at a minimum i want i want to see that the the person that the the ex-spouse is allegedly cohabitating with is actually in the house with them So, really, you need to get those kinds of pictures. You need to get pictures, you know, obviously the car in the driveway sometimes might not be enough, but you really need to get pictures at all hours of the day and all days of the week. A very, you know, I I actually think that you probably need several weeks of surveillance in order to really prove the case.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. But
1: private investigators are really expensive. It is
0: expensive. It's it's part of the cost. That's why you really need to be counseled. A, A client needs to be counseled. As to, you know, what's the remaining alimony obligation? How much is it going to cost them to try to reduce that or terminate it? So the private investigator cost is certainly part of it.
1: Yeah, and I, I would say that more times than not, to start a cohabitation case, you need a private investigator. Because, you know, the last thing you want to do is to show up at your ex-spouse's house with a camera outside, and send the car <laughs> and take pictures, because guess what? The police are going to show up behind you, and you're going to find yourself with a restraining order. Yes,
0: and our next show will be domestic violence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so the, the private investigator certainly is a little bit more trained on how to do it in a very covert way that most of us um, aren't very familiar with. So private investigator is very important. But once you you know, once you get those pictures and you get into court um, and the judge says, okay, I, I, think, I, I think they're at least living together. Um, so what happens next?
0: Well, after the private investigator, I guess you see what um, what evidence you have. And if it, if you have enough to demonstrate that this person is, or at least that there's some question that this person is there most of the time and could possibly be living there. Um, I You know, I always do Google searches. It's really amazing what you can find just on the internet about people. Maybe there's tax records or could be some real estate records that might come to light that Perhaps you weren't aware of again you know social media it's it's amazing what people post there and you gather all of that and you just it's like pieces of a puzzle and if you can put enough pieces of the puzzle on the table to show a picture that there's at least a, you know pretty good suggestion that this person is living with someone I, I think that's usually enough i have found judges to be probably pretty liberal in granting a, a trial if there's a cohabitation allegation, if it looks like the person is, is potentially living with someone. And the reason for that is because if you're the husband making this allegation, and you know obviously we can assume that the wife is trying to hide it, you're not really in a position to have all of the information that would... Would reveal everything. The wife is. So that's the reason that the court has to send the matter to a trial. So you end up with this period of time that we call discovery. A legal word. I'll try not to use too many more.
1: Safe word's coming soon.
0: (laughs) And, um, you know, you get this period of time where you can exchange information and you can gather information that the wife has to produce to demonstrate whether she has, you know, joint bank accounts with this person, if they have joint assets together, what her bills are, what her income is. If there's been any commingling of funds uh, or sharing of funds with this other person, if she is supporting that person, or even partially paying his bills, or if he's paying her bills, are they going on elaborate vacations together?
1: Wait, wait you, you mean you mean the husband, ex-husband, doesn't have to pay for the new boyfriend's new car? No,
0: the no. ex-husband does not have to do that. Shocking. But, you know, at the same time, the wife shouldn't be supporting the the boyfriend, but the boyfriend shouldn't also be supporting her. So that's really the issue is – and, and that's, that's really where it starts to get a little muddy is you can have a guy that stays over four nights a week – which the husband may find very offensive, and and I've often made the argument that if he's staying there that often, he is getting some kind of benefit, other than the obvious, but he is getting some kind of benefit, you know, in financial terms, where, you know, I had a case one time where the wife made significantly more money than her boyfriend did. He had some little studio apartment somewhere, and he actually increased his lifestyle, by living with the, girl, with the wife. So I made the argument that she was actually subsidizing his lifestyle. So those are just things to be mindful of. But really, I think where, where there should maybe be a brighter line and where I think you start to get into territory where there's a better chance that the alimony could be terminated is when you have that financial commingling. So, you know, just having your boyfriend stay over the house a few nights a week, you know, maybe there's some small financial benefit, but what could it possibly be, you know?
1: That's almost never going to be enough. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's really you're living together. And I I think what's really important that people need to understand is, and and you already touched on it a little bit, but once you kind of open the door and the court is looking, really it's the ex-wife now and we're stereotyping and I apologize to anyone out there that's on the other side of this but the ex-wife is really the one that has to prove her case she's yes. the one that has to now prove that there's not cohabitation occurring and she's got to she got to look at all the you know all the yeah. lovely factors we have and she's got to prove it and that means producing bank statements producing all the good stuff that's going to show that you know maybe she is You know, the boyfriend's over four nights a week, but she's the one paying all the bills. He has his own place. He's paying the bills. I mean, really, where I always think where people really get caught is Mm -hmm. when they both don't have a residence and they're together a lot.
0: Yeah, and and again, you know, you have to remember that when we use the term cohabitation, I think the average person thinks of that in terms of is he moved in or not, and that's not really what that means from a legal perspective what it what cohabitation really means from a legal perspective is is he there enough, and is there some kind of you know financial interdependence between these two people so that's really what courts are talking about when they talk about cohabitation, so it's just not enough from the husband's perspective it's not enough to show that he lives there, and from the wife's perspective, it's not enough to say, but he's only here a few nights a week.
1: Right, and in addition, remember, remember, you have to show that it's a supportive, intimate, personal relationship. That's right, it it's, can't just be a
0: buddy or a roommate.
1: Or, or even even somebody that, even if you are just dating them, if you only see them a couple days a week, I mean, it really, the court is looking for, don't forget, this is a, in a lot of times, this is a permanent termination of alimony. So the court's really going to look for a lasting relationship, which means a six-month relationship is almost never going to be enough to do it. You really need yeah, something. Unless there's
0: some real financial well, significant it, financial. It would, be, it would
1: have to be pretty pretty good, but there needs to be something very, um, very concrete. I mean, some of the some of the factors that the court would look at. I mean, for example, is the length of the relationship, and it, they would also look at. What, what do people out in social circles and family circles think about you? Does yeah, something you?
0: something that comes up a lot is is there a ring? Uh, oftentimes, I've seen a ring, and they call it something different. They call it a promise ring, or you know, whatever name they give it. But you know, the wifey's walking around <laughs> with a rock on her finger, and what is that? You okay. know, um, and I and I do want to point out something else because I hear this a lot. And I will say that the the guy has to be doing more than taking her out and buying her dinner. That's not enough. That's not going to be enough to consider her to be supported by this person.
1: All right. Um, We also got another question by email. Um, It really was, is there a way um, for alimony to be terminated if someone isn't living with a boyfriend or girlfriend, but rather, you know, a, a parent or just a roommate? Um, and I always, when I thought about that question, um, the, the answer is complex, but basically under, under the, the cohabitation law that we've sort of been discussing today, uh, generally, the answer is no. Uh, because that's really more for the intimate, personal, supportive relationships like marriage. However, that doesn't mean that there might not be a case, because you could make an argument, because alimony, as we all know, is because someone needs it. If you don't need it anymore then there's an argument to be made it should be reduced or terminated. So um, you, you can't really do anything with regard to what we're talking about here today, but there might be other arguments you can do. Um, and that really, the more important issue here is that that's why you need to go see an attorney that practices family law. Because the, the beauty of what we do is that um, the court is able to do whatever's fair, whatever's fair and equitable under the circumstances, which basically just means... Whatever a judge, in their gut, feels is fair under the circumstances. There's not a lot of black and white. Yeah,
0: sometimes that's not beautiful though, because no. sometimes uh, you get trying, judges, nasty. you get judges who, um, let's just say, they have a different idea of what's fair than than the rest of us. So, and, you know, and we touched on that a little earlier. Is nobody can promise you a result. At the courthouse, we don't know what the court's going to do. We don't know what a judge is going to do. And sometimes they do things that we don't agree with. So it really is true when, when people continually throughout this whole divorce process, they, they try to beat into you that you should go to mediation and you should settle your case. And... It's really true it's because it's so unpredictable to be in court and really not be able to predict what a judge is going to do with your case. So if you I like to refer refer to it as just controlling the bleeding, you know going to mediation and trying to compromise in some fashion that you can live with rather than have something imposed upon you by a court.
1: well I think I, I think it's really gotten to the point in our practice that we can't actually even remotely tell people what's going to happen in court. It's gotten that unpredictable. And we have a lot of really good judges that um, try very hard. Yes. But, um, you know, the problem, you know, not to get overly political, but the problem is we don't have enough judges, and there's a lot of vacancies throughout the state. And, um, you know, we have politicians that, you know, fight amongst themselves. And what the people that really get hurt are the citizens that need to go into court and get their, re- their um, disputes resolved. The whole reason they're in court is because they couldn't resolve their dispute outside of court for the most part. And if you just go to court and you're not um, given given the proper amount of time to get a resolution, that's really uh, really can be harmful. Which leads me to um, a war story that I'd like to go over uh, with you today, Christina.
0: That's right. I was hoping you know maybe next time we could have some some theme music with uh, you know machine guns or something.
1: I don't know, it needs to I don't be know if that's, that's too dorky. Why don't we just bring a real one in here? And... <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: That's a great idea, John.
1: We're going to we're gonna, we're gonna <laughs> go get our licenses before next week. Um, so here's the deal. Um, so my worst story is a mediation that I was actually at today with um, some very, very good adversaries, um, some of the best attorneys in the state. Um, and the, it came to mediation the um, reason it's relevant to this program is um, part of the case involves cohabitation. But what happened is we go into court, we, we present our case to a judge, and the judge doesn't really resolve anything, but it sends the entire case to mediation. Have you ever heard of such a thing, Christine? Oh, uh,
0: well, recently, yes. It seems that it happens every day. So when you file a motion, just assume that they're going to not rule on anything, and they're just going to tell you to go to mediation. And, That's I, and what you should expect.
1: And, and, I, and you know, we, we sort of understand it on some level because the courts are really overworked. And sometimes the reason they send it to mediation is they have to schedule it for a trial, but they don't want to do that because there's not enough time to, to have trials. So they send it to mediation usually with very good mediators that are really known in the county. Um, But, you know, at this mediation today, this was a a very, very typical high-conflict mediation. And what I mean by that is going into mediation, sometimes everyone goes in really wanting to sit around a table, hold hands, and sing kumbaya, and (laughs) finalize the case. Um, Other times... You know, one person is really, really ready to go, and they're willing to compromise as much as they have to to get the case done. But then there's times like today where both parties are so entrenched and so in their corners. It's like two boxers in a rink, and they're over there getting, you know, toweled off, ready to go, and they're just ready to come to the middle and start beating each other yeah, up. Yeah, and they, they
0: that's the main event for them. So they're not not—they're not ready to go home yet. They're not ready to be done.
1: Right, and, you know... I. I, I, You know, not every mediator is really good for that kind of work. Today we had an excellent mediator who was really good with it. But, you know, I, I always find that, you know, when you go into mediation, which is the most popular way to resolve cases these days, is mediation. Which basically means a third-party neutral attorney – it's usually an attorney. It can be other uh, professionals – an attorney who sits down with the parties and their attorneys and tries to resolve the case. And, you know – there's all kinds of mediators in the world. There's the mediators that try to bring everyone to the middle. There's other mm-hmm. mediators that tell one party, you're being a jerk, stop it. You're, you know, you need to go over here. And there's everything in between. So, you know, one thing uh, you always need to keep in mind if you start going through one of these cases, uh, if you're unfortunate enough to go through one of these cases, is that uh, you got to be really careful who's doing your mediation, and really ask questions of your attorney. Who is the mediator? Do you know this person? Do you know how they're going to be? You know, what are you doing? So today we, we were there, um, and we brought our incredible associate, Marissa. who Marissa I, Hirsch. Marissa Hirsch, who I'm sure um, you'll hear from at some point in the future. Um, and I brought her along because I knew this case was going to be the kind of case where it really, really, really was just nasty on both sides, just really nasty. Um, but I think some of the lessons that I, I, I kind of want to discuss with you, Christine, today, because what, what made the case nasty? What made the case nasty was these parties got divorced and had a settlement agreement that wasn't written very well. And by, what I mean by not written very well is on some of the major issues, there were conflicting provisions. In other words, in paragraph one, it would say the sky is blue. In paragraph two, it would say the sky is green. Well, is it green or blue? Well, we don't know because now we've got an agreement that's got two different things. There's other sections that didn't have enough detail. Like, for example, parties agreed to a number in terms of child support, but didn't tell us how they got to it. And so since we don't know how they got to it to begin with, well, we certainly don't know how to modify it now because we didn't know where, how it originally came to.
0: So it's like you're starting from scratch.
1: Exactly. And then there was other places where they were just missing details. So. Whenever, so what advice would you have for someone going through a divorce who's not an attorney, but they're being presented with this voluminous document called a matrimonial settlement agreement or a property settlement agreement? Those are the popular terms for what we call the That's final right. agreement. What, what what advice would you have for well, somebody?
0: I think by the time people are in their case and they're reviewing a property settlement agreement, it's you know maybe a thirty-page document. Um, not particularly fun to read, a lot of legally stuff, but a lot of really pertinent stuff that the client needs to make sure that they read and understand. Because even if you have the best relationship with your attorney and you have all the faith in the world in your attorney, you are the one that is bound by that document, not the attorney. So you really need to make sure that you read it The entire thing, that you understand it, and this goes back to what we said at the beginning of the show, if you don't understand something, you have to be comfortable telling your attorney, I don't understand that, what does that mean? So that you are, you know, when you put your signature on that, you're basically saying, I read this, I understand it, I agree to be bound by it. You can't later say you know, two years later when there's some dispute, well, I didn't know that that's what I was signing, or I didn't understand that. And in fact, you have to go to court, and many of you listening, if you've been through this already, you you may recall that you had to go to court at some point in time when you, after you signed it to get the divorce, and you had to say certain things to the judge that, that you did read the document, that you understood it, that you signed it. Um, so we just see far too many mistakes made when people are signing something that they don't understand, or, you know, if there's something in there that they misunderstood, you know, I thought that the alimony was going to be one thing and it's something else. And I'll ask them, well, why did you sign it that way? Well, I don't know. I, my, I trusted my attorney, and, and he said to sign it. So I did. So it, it's the most one of the most important documents that you'll ever sign. Well,
1: I think for most people, it is the absolute most important document they're going to sign. And that's something, you know, over, over the course of this show, we'll discuss more and more about, you know, what things that you should probably look for when you're going through this process and things you should be cognizant about. Um, we are um, going to be back next week with another really exciting topic.